Thank you, Brother Kirby and team. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I will say that I think it is a little bit ironic that we have seven pastors and Brother Shane's going to be preaching for us this month, and of all of them, I'm the only one not a father, and I get to preach on Father's Day. Just a, a little bit of irony there that I can appreciate. Am I echoing pretty bad? Yeah? Can we? Jeremy's working on it. He'll get it. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, brother. All right. Uh, so I do want to say good morning. I am grateful to be here. I'm, I feel privileged to be here, and I'm also terrified to be here. Um, and partly, uh, as we look at James 3, because verse 1 says not many people should be teachers, so there is often a fear and the uh, self-reflection, should I be up here? Is that, is that something that is fitting and appropriate? So there is a, a healthy fear that comes with this, but I am grateful to be here, and uh, I pray that as we, as we look at the text today, I pray that God speaks, and I pray that this is helpful and beneficial and fruitful for all of us. Um, so if you would, let's pray together, and uh, then we'll begin. Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity that we have to be here. God, I thank you for the chance we have to come together as a body of believers to hear from you this morning, to hear from your word. I thank you that we can come together and just uh, freely look at this, and God, that we can worship you through your word and song and through the preaching. And God, I do pray that you would uh, bless the preaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would attend your word this morning. And God, I pray that you would help me to say everything that I should and nothing that I shouldn't. And I pray that you would protect me from any error, protect the hearers. And God, I pray that you would bless the congregation, those who are going to hear this message. God, I pray that this would be what they need to hear. I pray that this would be fruitful for them. And God, I pray that, um, Lord, again, just that you would help me as I am weak and as I am just struck with uh, just a sense of unworthiness uh, to be up here to share your word with people, God, I pray that uh, you would help and that you would bless in our midst this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> in 2009, uh, a man named Stephen Von Worley took it upon himself to map out every McDonald's in the 48 contiguous states. And his, his main goal was to figure out how far can you go in America away from all of the McDonald's's? What is the farthest place, the farthest point you can get to away from any McDonald's store? And in 2009, there were 13,000 plus stores, and he found that the farthest you could get away was 107 miles as the crow flies, or 145 driving by car. Which, when you think about the scope and the size of the 48 states, that's pretty remarkable that that's as far as you can get away from McDonald's. But it started, McDonald's started as just a tiny little one-shop drive-up burgers, milkshakes, and fries restaurant by the McDonald brothers until Ray Kroc came to visit. He was impressed that they kept buying milkshake-making machines when no one else wanted to make that many. And he said, there must be something going on there that's worth checking out. So he went and checked it out. And he found this thing, and he thought the way they were doing food had the chance to be revolutionary. And it had, to change, had the opportunity to change the way we did fast food. And he was struck by it, so he immediately tried to get in with them 
and get involved with the McDonald brothers and to expand this business. And they were reluctant at first, but they did a little bit, and they, they started a, a few more franchises in California, and then he said he wanted to start one in Illinois, and they said, why do you want to start McDonald's? The McDonald name doesn't mean anything in the Midwest. And he said, I think it could. And lo and behold, a few years later, and now, I mean, that was probably 60 years ago when they got started, but eventually, he would end up buying out the McDonald brothers. He owned the entire corporation, had all the rights to do what he wanted, and now, to the point where in 2009, you can't get more than 100 or so miles away from them because they're everywhere. And it's one of the biggest corporations, a multi-billion dollar corporation that's it's everywhere in America. What was it that Ray Kroc had that the brothers didn't, the McDonald brothers did not have? What did they lack that he had that drove him to do what he did? I'd say one of the biggest things he had was ambition. He had an ambition that drove him to, to take McDonald's from one little shop into what we know today. And that was 2009, there was 13,000 plus, there's 1,000 more now, it's like 14,400 McDonald's stores in America. So it might even be smaller, it might even be a shorter window where you can get away from McDonald's in America today, I don't know. But that's pretty remarkable, that the ambition of that man had to take one shop in California and make it a nationwide phenomenon, revolutionize the industry, revolutionize the way you and I eat today. And ambition can be a good thing. Ambition drives some to greatness. Causes, cures for diseases, invention and innovation. Some people take ambition and it drives them to great things. And others allow their ambition to drive them to not such great things. And for some people, ambition can be a serious problem. Ambition can spring up rivalry, it can bring up division. Um, I think of the NBA and the NHL both had their championship series and they both crowned new champions and um, it just brings to mind stories that you hear throughout the season through football and basketball and whatever where fans of different factions get into fights in the stadiums or in the parking lots afterward. Uh, ambition drives people to love something so much that anything else they hate, even in fandom of whatever, it, you can see this. Every time something new comes out in the Star Wars universe, there's an outcry of rage. Whether it's, I mean, whatever your opinion of the movies is, some people are going to love it, but there's some people who are just going to hate it. And if you go online for any amount of time and just look for that stuff, it's there and it's everywhere. Even, even in entertainment, the ambition of some people drives them to division, to strife, to issues. Um, there was an instance once where there was, um, if some of you guys may know, in college football, the Auburn-Alabama game is an intense rivalry. And one time, there was a game where Auburn won on one of the most improbable plays ever. They call it kick six, where a player returned a field goal that was short all the way, the entire length of the field, scored for Auburn, and won the game on one of the most incredible, improbable plays you'll ever see in sports. And there was a group of people having a party to watch the game, all Alabama fans. And some of them, after the game, were absolutely crushed. 
But there was a couple of ladies who were at that party, sisters who were sitting around talking, laughing, because they didn't really care that much about football. And another lady at that party was distraught and said, do you not care about what just happened? And one of them said, not that much. And the lady who was so upset literally went into her car, got a gun, and shot the lady who said she didn't care. Killed a woman because she did not care enough about a football game that a team lost. So ambition can be a good thing, but can be a very terrible thing as well. Ambition and rivalry can cause serious, serious problems. And James in James chapter 3 is going to address some of these problems that ambition can cause in the lives of, in, of believers and in the church. So if you would, if you have your Bible, uh, you can read along or the words will be up on the screen as we read uh, from James chapter 3. James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
We're going to start, and primarily we're going to look at verses 13 through 18, but we're going to see how that ties back into the beginning of the chapter as we look at how the wisdom from above is going to help us to bridle the tongue and why that's important. Why does that matter? So in verse 13, James writes, and he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So he starts off by talking about wisdom and meekness and how they go together. What is, what is meekness? How would we define that? Meekness is a trait that we don't typically seem to value in our culture today because typically today we, we, we value those who are assertive, those who are strong, those who get what they want, and like the real go-getters. That's kind of, that's kind of who, that's who succeeds in life. That's who we look up to. Meekness kind of carries an opposite attitude. The idea of meekness is the idea of kind of being deferent. It's your strength under control. A lot of times we think of meekness as just weakness, but that's, that's not the case at all. Meekness is saying, I don't have to be first and that's okay. Meekness is saying, you can go before me and I'm okay with that. Trusting in the Lord to take care of our lives, to take care of our circumstances, we can be meek because we don't have to be the greatest. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to assert ourselves to get what we want all the time. That's a result, or the opposite of that, the assertion, that need, is ultimately a lack of faith. Because if we do not have faith that God is going to take care of our needs, then we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we have ourselves taken care of in the here and now. An inability to trust in what we cannot see makes us depend on what we can see. We are dependent on making sure I have what I need, making sure I have the resources, I have the money, I have what I want. That need, that impulse, that compulsion is born out of a lack of faith. We don't trust God to take care of us unless we can see the needs being met right here, right now. Unless my bank account has X in it, unless I've got this promotion, this job locked down, I've got this kind of security, without that kind of blanket, we just don't, we don't trust in God unless we can see it. Meekness is a manner of faith. Meekness is saying, even though I do not see how God is going to provide for me, I don't have to go out and get that all on my own. I don't have to succeed at all costs because I know that there is a God who's taking care of me. And that is an, an, an aspect of the wisdom that he's talking about here. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That initial question is kind of, it's, it's a challenge more than an actual question. It's rhetorical. Saying, who is wise and understanding among you? He's not asking for a show of hands. It's a letter. That wouldn't really be effective anyway. But he's, he's saying, if you are wise and understanding, then I challenge you to demonstrate that in your works. Demonstrate in their actions. Do you show the meekness of wisdom? And showing your actions in the meekness of wisdom is a demonstration that you are a wise and understanding person. Because those who are constantly striving, trying to get what's theirs, trying to make sure that they have what's theirs, 
That is not a display of wisdom. That is exactly the opposite. And verse 14, that's what he talks about there. He, he's counterbalancing these two ideas. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So he says, who's wising and understanding among you? And by the way, if you have bitterness and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't brag that that's you because you're proving that it's not. Selfish ambition and this bitter jealousy, this rivalry that we create when we think I have to be the best, my team has to be the best, my group has to be the best, my company has to be the best, I have to be the best, I have to look good. That is a demonstration that you lack wisdom. And he says, don't boast, don't boast, don't be false to the truth. You're lying. You're lying to yourself. If you think that constantly proving to everyone that your top dog shows that, oh, you're so clever and so wise, no, it's, it's actually proving the exact opposite. Meekness shows wisdom. Self-assertion shows foolishness, shows a lack of wisdom. But he's not talking about a complete lack of wisdom. He's kind of talking about a different kind of wisdom. In verse 15, he says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So he's not saying necessarily that one is wisdom and the other is not wisdom. He's saying this is the wisdom from above, and what you're dealing with is a different kind of wisdom. It is a wisdom of this world. Even for all of the effects of sin on our brains. I mean, just think of what we, what we, what we had uh, Brother Mike read in Ecclesiastes 1 today. He sought to know wisdom. He sought to understand the world. And what was the result? At the end of it, he said, I saw what an unhappy venture it is to understand these things. That is not... I specifically picked that passage. It is not an encouraging passage to have as our scripture reading because Ecclesiastes is Solomon's existential quandary into the meaning of life, saying, I sought for everything under the sun and everything is vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. Everything is vexation of the spirit is how uh, the King James translates it. It's self-torture. The more wisdom of this world that he got the more he understood the way things worked, it drove him to despair, really. And that's kind of what James is getting at here. There's a wisdom of this world, bound to this world, and then there's another kind of wisdom that comes down from above. That's what James was talking about in James chapter 1. James 1.17, he says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. That's the same phrase, from above, comes down from the Father of lights. And in James 1, he says, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to everyone generously and does not reproach. The wisdom from above is a gift from God. Everything, every good thing is a gift from God. Specifically, this wisdom, it is a gift from God that he gives. And there's another kind of wisdom that is the opposite. And he uses that language to draw the contrast. He says it is not coming down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Some commentators I was reading said that they're not, it's not talking about like the, the results of that wisdom or the product of that wisdom. It's talking about the source of that wisdom. 
James is talking about there's wisdom that comes down from God, and there's wisdom that comes from what is below, from the demonic, that comes from what is unspiritual, comes from the earth. It's earthly wisdom. It's bound here. It's limited by here. It can't know anything but what's here. And we see this in all sorts of places, don't we? I mean, we, we, hear, we hear phrases, we hear things. If, if you've got any lost friends at all, then you're hearing this on a daily basis. It's what the world lives by. Think of phrases like, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. When it, several times in the Old Testament, God says, I, don't, I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. It's the exact opposite. But the wisdom of the world is, if you want to do it, you want to get away with it, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, because that way you can still, you know, get what you want. The American dream, basically the idea of get what's yours and seek fulfillment, seek happiness in whatever you can, in your career, in your sex life, in your social life, through travel, through popularity, through all your forms of entertainment, vindication in your political views, do all that, make good choices with your money, and if you're lucky, you can quit and retire before you die. That's the American dream. And that's what we're supposed to be shooting for. That's, that's the goal. That's the wisdom of this world. That is the wisdom of this world. When they have nothing higher than that to aim for, the goal in this life is to save up so you can quit before you're dead. Because you don't want to work all the way until you die, do you? That'd be terrible. And that's, that's it. That's, that's, all, that's all that we can aim for. If we're dealing with the wisdom from this world, and the source is from this world, what better is there? I want to be free, I want to do whatever I want to do, and if I'm lucky, I can retire and do that all the time. And I don't have to go to work anymore. That's it. That is the wisdom of this world. That's all that we have to shoot for, according to the wisdom of this earth. But what James is saying is there is something else out there. There is another alternative. There is a different kind of wisdom that we can seek. And it's in seeking that wisdom that we get the, the answers to the problems that we run into in the beginning of James chapter 3. So let's look at those verses just briefly. I don't want to spend too much time there because, I mean, that's four or five sermons in and of itself, and I don't want to do that to you all. But at the beginning, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In James's day, he was dealing with a lot of people who wanted to be teachers for the wrong motives. It was their own selfish ambition. They wanted that popularity. They wanted that recognition. And some of them, honestly, the, the working, the poor classes didn't get to learn how to read. Some people wanted to be teachers just because that would give you the opportunity to learn how to read. Because if you're going to be a teacher, you have to learn how to read so you can teach. So if you pursued that track, that course, then someone would probably teach you how to read. And so some of these people were seeking the opportunity to be teachers just for their own sakes, for their own good, their own benefit. They wanted themselves to look good, they wanted that self-affirmation. They wanted people to look up to them. Their selfish ambition, like James is talking about later, is what's driving these people to be teachers. And James says that shouldn't be the case. And he gives them the warning that you know that people who teach are judged more strictly. You know that those who teach face a harsher judgment. 
So you shouldn't view the call to teach as something to take advantage of. It shouldn't be that way. The call to teach is a calling. Paul said, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. He could not do anything else. And I would encourage you, if you, if you do seek that, because Hebrews does say, uh, the author of Hebrews does say, not, James says not many of you should be teachers. Hebrews says some of you should be. He says some of you ought to be teaching by now, but I have to teach you again the elementary things, treat you like children. So some should. If God's given you that gift, if he's given you that calling, you should pursue teaching, but not everybody. So do be careful. If that, is, if that is your goal, don't just take that on yourself. Get help. Seek advice from outside people. Um, part, of going, part of going to college, part of applying at Southern Seminary, they said they, part of the application process was, have you been affirmed by people outside of yourself that you are called to preach, that you're called to the ministry? Because it's not just a selfish ambition thing. They want to make sure, yeah, this is legitimate. This is real. You're doing this for the right reasons. And I can tell you, I mean, just as a personal example, if I didn't feel that way, I would not be teaching here. I teach one of the Sunday school classes. I'm preaching here today. If you know me at all, you're probably in the minority of this room because I haven't met many of you. Because I don't talk a lot. I'm not very outgoing. If I'm not doing this then I probably haven't said a whole lot to you. And that's not on purpose. It's not because I don't like, well, it is kind of on purpose. It's not because I don't like you. <laughs> I'm just more, I keep to myself and I'm not outgoing. And I, I just, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of important things to say other than this. So if I'm not behind a, a lectern or a pulpit with this in front of me, I don't have much to say. If I haven't met you, please come meet me because I'm shy and I'm not going to do that. But I, I should get to know more of you. <clears throat> but if it were not for the call of God on my life, I would not be up here. Because the call to teach, the call to preach, this is not a light thing. This is not a small thing. And people were using their selfish ambition to drive them to this goal just for their own recognition. That's a, that's a poor motive to seek service, to seek a position in the Lord's ministry. And then he goes on and he talks about the tongue, which is another specific warning to these people who are going to be teaching. He says, if you are going to be a teacher, then your tool, the instrument of your ministry, the instrument of what you do every day as a teacher is the most dangerous thing you've got. It's the most dangerous wild animal that you can imagine. Your tongue, the instrument, your words, the manner in which you teach is also the thing you should fear more than anything else. I mean, and it's, it's kind of ironic, but also it should make us think. He's saying, be careful what you say because the tongue is unruly, but listen to the language that he uses. Uh, in verse, the end of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That is not a small thing. Think of that. 
He's, he's warning you, be careful with your words, and while warning you, be careful with your words, I'm going to use the strongest language I can think of. Your tongue is set on fire by hell. That's crazy. You know he's not just using that phrase lightly. That's the very thing he's warning against. You know he takes that seriously. You know this is not some casual, flippant use of it. You know this is a big deal to him. This is the very thing he's talking about, and yet he's using... Well, I, I can't imagine how you would say it much stronger. Um, down to verse 8. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is nothing to take lightly. So think about that. Think about that. When we talk to people, it goes on to say, if you, we, with our mouths we bless God and curse people who are made in the image of God. When you talk to people, you can say some terrible things. You can tear them down. Proverbs says that the tongue has the power both to wound and to heal. Here he says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think of that. That's a harsh warning. It's a strong warning. The things you say to someone can really change the way they live their lives. This is not a small thing. It says, look how great a fire a little matter kindles. It, your tongue is a small piece of your body, but it can do great damage. And the words we say to other people can be really damaging, but it can also be very life-giving. So if you're thinking about, oh, I should say something to so-and-so, that was really encouraging. I think, eh, well, that's something I do a lot because I'm not very outgoing. I think, eh, they know they did good. They know. They're fine. And I refrain from saying good things, helpful, encouraging things to other people just because it would be hard for me because they're talking to somebody else. I'd have to go interrupt and I don't want to do that. Do it. <laughs> do that thing. Go talk to someone. You have an encouraging word for someone. Share that word with them. I, I cannot tell you how many times I have been discouraged in my ministry, teaching classes or preaching or just whatever ministry we do here at the church if I'm involved in, I can get very discouraged seemingly very easily. And it's always when I'm at my worst, when I'm at my lowest, that the Lord brings people into my heart, people into my life who just say an encouraging word. And it makes all the difference. Even just this morning, I've got text from basically every pastor saying, I'm praying for you this morning. And that's so encouraging knowing that all the other pastors in this church, knowing that this is going to happen, because they know that I'm nervous, they know that I don't do this often, they know that this is tough. And so every one of them has texted me this morning or come up to me or both and said, hey, I love you and I'm praying for you. That's so encouraging. You have opportunities to do that here in your small group and in your families. You can do that sort of thing, so do it. And also, you can, you can do the opposite as well. Not just speaking to someone with words that are too harsh. Think about what you say when people aren't there. Think specifically like in the business world. You can destroy someone's reputation by what you say behind their back. What you say to someone else's boss about so-and-so. I mean, you, could, you could ruin their career, so to speak, with just a word. And they don't even have to be in the room. You have that power in your tongue. So be wary of that. Be careful of that. And the scariest part of it all is here James says, no man can tame the tongue. 
And he's giving us all of this warning, and he says we all stumble in many ways. Well, great, we're all doomed, apparently. No man can tame the tongue. The tongue is doing all of this evil, and we all stumble in many ways. Well, great. What hope do any of us have? That seems like it. But I think there's one important distinction to make. He says no man can tame the tongue. And in in chapter 1, he says, uh, if any man thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. He deceives himself. His religion is worthless. So I think we don't tame our tongue. We don't tame our own tongue. We bridle it with the wisdom from above. When we let the wisdom from above come into our lives, the ideas of meekness, realizing I don't need to be the best If someone else gets promoted before me, great. If someone else wins the game, if someone else's company gets the recognition, fine. I don't need that. And when that happens, that will help us to bridle our tongues. We will never control them perfectly. We are sinful human beings, and it's just, it's wilder than any wild animal. We'll never be perfect in this area. But... When we let the wisdom from above pervade our lives, when we let the wisdom from above come in and control our lives, it bridles our tongue. And that's the point James is trying to make here. The wisdom that comes from above is not like the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world wants you to get ahead. Because that's the only way to be happy, right? Get ahead, be the best, be number one. But that's not the case. The wisdom from above says you can be meek. You can let others in front of you. You don't have to be the alpha dog. And that's okay. And when you don't have that ambition, when you don't have that selfish drive toward rivalry, it's, it, you're not going to be as tempted to tear other people down with your tongue. You're not going to be as tempted to shoot other people down with your words because you don't mind them getting recognized when you're not. You're okay with that. So the wisdom that comes from above is the manner in which we bridle our tongues. So how, well, let's read verse 17 and 18 in James 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom, the wisdom from above here sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. There's a lot of parallels, a lot of overlap there. And I think there's, I think there's, I think there's a reason for that. I think that the fruit of the Spirit produces wisdom in us. And it produces the wisdom that's from above not the wisdom from this world. And we need to seek that wisdom. Well, where do, we, where do we get wisdom? Well, like we talked about, James 1, you ask God for it. And what are the means that, by which he gives it to us? I think there's two principal ways that he gives it to us. Number one is reading through his scripture. And I think number two is having other people speak this scripture into your life. An important part of wisdom is, not real, is realizing we cannot do all of this on our own. 
An important part of wisdom is having brothers and sisters in our lives who can speak to us. Because just, I mean, there's people with like a, a good mindset, a good idea, a good attempt at just trying to make sure that they're biblical, say, all I need is just me and my Bible. That's it. That's, that's good, but I think you are missing something important. Because you're going to read this, but you're going to read this from your point of view every time. Because you only have the eyes in your own head. And I think it's important for us to hear. And that's why I think it's important for us to have different men preaching through this summer. I think it's good and it's helpful and we're very blessed that other men can do this. I think it's important that we do that because we need to hear even the same truth from different voices is good and helpful. And you need people in your life who are willing to speak to you the words from God. And specifically, for all of us here in this room, if you're, especially if you're a member of this church, if you're a member of a community group or a small group, the small group leader is someone who you should be able to go to for this advice. And anybody in this church, your pastors want to be people who you go to to get wisdom from above. Not that we have it, not that we, yeah, we got it in the office, just let us know, we'll unlock it and give you a little bit. It's not like that. But the pastors of this church, and I'm going to exclude myself from that just so I'm not seem to be bragging, but when, let me just say it like this then. When we go to an elders meeting, and it's the seven elders around the table, I'm extremely grateful for the men around the table because I don't have to say much there. Because we have three pastors who are on paid staff who think about this all the time. They think it, they eat, drink, sleep, breathe. This church, this life, this body. And I'm grateful for that. And they do a fantastic job with that. And it's this, this life, their livelihood and their ministry overlap. And that allows them to really give themselves to it. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the other lay elders we have. Brother Jim, uh, Brother Mike, Brother Gary. Men with more experience, especially, I mean, Brother Gary was a head pastor for how many years? Brother Mike's been in this church for how many years? Brother Jim is just an older man who's, uh, than me. <laughs> sorry, Jim. I'm sorry, brother. <clears throat> I mean, I'm the, I'm the youngest, I'm the, I'm the least experienced man at the table. And I know that, and I'm grateful for everyone else at the table because I don't have to speak up. And so I, when I say this, I'm not, I'm not specifically trying to get you all. I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to be wary of the warning in James 3 and wary of this warning. I'm not trying to puff myself up by saying, go to your pastors for advice. I'm saying you've got men in this church who are specifically affirmed by this church to lead who want to help you with decisions, life decisions. Should I take this job? Should I take this job? Should I take this promotion? Should we move? Should we do this, that, or the other thing? Whatever it is, not that we're going to exercise authority over you. We're not trying to boss every one of your lives. But there are big decisions that you're going to make in life, and you need wisdom from above. And the pastors in this church and your small group leaders are an extension of that leadership. They're, all of your small group leaders would not be small group leaders if we did not trust them to be doing that job. These are people, men, and there are women in your small groups as well, the small group leaders' wives, who you can go to for wisdom. And it's really encouraging when someone comes to us saying, hey, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? Not, we decided this, what do you think? It is, it is tough to have a conversation, to give wisdom and to impart wisdom with someone who's already made their mind up. 
So let that just be an encouragement to you. We want to help you. We want you to come to us. We want to be shepherds. That's what pastor means. We want to shepherd you through life. Because every part of your life matters. Every part of it does. And you need to be seeking out wisdom, and we want to help you with that. We want to offer that to you. We want to help you through decisions. Not, again, not to boss you around or tell you what you ought to do and you have to do this, but we do want to shepherd you through life because life is tough and this world is big and it's hard and we're here to help you out. So that, that is, I think, the two primary ways where we get our wisdom, through reading the word ourselves and from getting it from other people. You ought to also have brothers and sisters in your life who can keep you accountable Brothers and sisters in your life who know you and know your life enough where they can speak into you. They know when something is wrong. And they can speak the word of God into your life. That is an important part of us living in wisdom. And when you live like that, when you have input from brothers and sisters, when you have the word of God directing your heart, directing your life, that's how we bridle the tongue. Something that is so hard, something that is un... It's impossible by ourselves, unmanageable. We cannot do it ourselves. But with the body and with the Spirit of God working through his word into our lives, we can at least bridle the tongue. And that's what we need to be doing. Let your ambition go. Let your ambition go. Let your selfish, bitter jealousy die. And instead, replace that with wisdom from above. Because this world doesn't want you to do what's right. They don't care about you. They just want you to buy their stuff, and that's it. So don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. I just want to read a couple verses um, from Philippians while I turn there. It's really interesting. While I was working on this sermon, there was a commercial that came on. Um, it was a, uh, I forget the name of the company. I think it was SoFi or Fios, one of those, I don't even know what they do, electronic internet machine companies. I don't know what they do. But their tagline, I'm literally working on this sermon with notes, watching a World Cup soccer game, and a commercial comes on, and their slogan at the beginning is, the world belongs to the ambitious. I'm like, well, that's just a gimme. Write that down. It's <laughs> but that's the idea of the world. The world belongs to the ambitious. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said the, the meek will inherit the earth. Seek wisdom from above. Don't believe the lies of this world. In Philippians chapter 2, just we're going to read verses 3 and 4 as we close. Paul writing says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is a far cry from the wisdom of this world. Let's take that to heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love and your kind, caring concern for us. God, I thank you that we are free to be meek, knowing that you will take care of us, knowing that we are your children and you will not abandon us. God, I thank you that you've shown us that the wisdom of this world is a lie. We need a wisdom that comes from somewhere else. God, we need wisdom that comes from you. So God, I thank you that 
you've promised us in, in your word in James that we only need to ask because you give us wisdom generously. It is your desire to do that. So God, I pray for us here as a body. I pray for the people here in Oak Park that you would give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would help us in that way. We seek wisdom from above, not of this world. We've seen, as we read Ecclesiastes, Lord, just the hopelessness of this world and everything that is tied to it. So God, I pray that you would help us to seek something better. Help us to seek something greater. God, help us to seek after you and your wisdom. Lord, knowing that if we, if we just try to bridle the tongue, if we just try to tame it ourselves, we're fighting a losing battle. God, it's not all about just try harder and do better. Lord, you've given us the means to do it. So God, I pray that we would seek your word for your wisdom. I pray that we would seek your word in the lives of other people. I pray that we would allow the church body to speak into our lives your truth and your word. And God, I pray that our hearts would be humbled and Lord, that we would seek your face. And God, I pray that as we sing here, that it would be an acceptable offering of worship to you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.